if you have your Bibles, and if you can find a book, it's a big book, so it's not one of those little tiny one-chapter ones in the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel, okay? Just kind of open it to about two-thirds or three-fourths of your Bible. It's toward the end of the New Te uh, Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. It's been my privilege, by the way, I forgot to introduce myself for those on uh, screen, and that is I'm Harry Fletcher, and uh, our lead pastor will be back, Lord willing, uh, two weeks from today. So I've been doing this uh, study on what does the future hold, biblical prophecy in the last days. And uh, as I was preparing for this message, a couple of weeks ago, this picture caught my attention uh, when I saw Russian President Vladimir Putin deepening his ties with Iran and Turkey, both countries, when he met with Ayatollah, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and President Erdogan. So in a few minutes, you'll understand why I just put that picture up for you. Now, when we study biblical prophecy, <clears throat> there are two principles you will often hear me repeat. The first principle is this, and this will hold you, your feet steady and your mind steady, I hope, and it will uh, keep you from leaping into some things that may not necessarily be true. Number one, examine current events in light of biblical prophecy. Do not read biblical prophecy into current events. So if you look at that long enough, it's not a tongue twister, it's not to tease you, it's just plain what I call common sense. Now, if the end times are close, and that does seem possible, then Russia, Iran, and Turkey, and the Islamic influence fits perfectly. But to hold my feet to the fire and make sure I adhere to the first principle, there is a second principle. When the time arrives for a prophecy to be fulfilled, the current events and prophecy will align together. Now, what am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. We saw two weeks ago that the next event on the prophetic scene is the rapture of the church. And it is my understanding after that, the day of the Lord begins, what we call also the seven-year tribulation period, and the time clock of prophecy that stopped for God's dealing with through Israel stopped at the crucifixion, the rejection of Messiah. That ended the first 69 weeks. We've been in a gap now for 2,000 years with a group called the church of which you're a part. Church is a mystery. It's not prophesied. You won't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. won't find the rapture anywhere there uh, as well. So the way I look at it is kind of like this. If you would go to a Broadway show or you'd go down to Wang Theater or whatever you go to and you're going to see a musical or a play or whatever it is, you go there and you get your ticket, you sit down, and then uh, you're waiting for one thing. You're waiting for what? The curtain to open up. Because all the actors and all the actresses and the musicians or the orchestra, they're already on the stage. They're just behind the curtain. Now, I liken the opening of the curtain to the rapture. And what we have taken place today is that all the actors of the end time, even as we're going to see this morning, are on the stage. That doesn't mean the curtain's going to open tomorrow or 50 years from now or 100 years from now. We don't know. So we don't set a time for the returning of the Lord. 
You'll make a fool out of yourself, trust me. And you don't want to do that. So no man knows the hour of his return. But if you put these two principles together, it might be helpful for you. Now this morning, we want to see Ezekiel's prophecy. And I dare say probably most of you have never heard a message on this. And I'll explain why in just a minute. But it speaks of a coming invasion of Israel. And with current events aligning in a way that suggest, underline, that it could be very near. Of course, if God's program is delayed, then everything else is going to change as well. But it seems to me with Israel now in the land since 1948, which is one of the key elements in Bible prophecy, and which began in the preceding chapters, 36 and 37. Now, 38 and 39, in case you didn't know this, and you'll, you'll, you'll commend me for being such a smart man. They come after 36 and 37, okay? <laughs> and so 36 and 37, Israel's in the land. Caution. The prophecy in Ezekiel 36, 37 has not been fulfilled yet. But possibly it's beginning. It has begun to be fulfilled with the Jews' return of the land of 19. 48. So now we're following with 38 and 39, which many Bible scholars believe uh, is one of the most, if not the most difficult prophetic passage in Scripture. And it's a very difficult one. Even among conservative evangelical Bible teachers, there are different interpretations. May I give you one word of caution here? I'm going to give you what I think is the truth, but I want you to hear me. I don't know that what I'm going to present to you is the absolute meaning of what the Holy Spirit intended when Ezekiel 38 and 39. Whenever you have a group of Bible teachers who are committed to the Word of God like we are, love Christ, and there are differences of opinion, just be smart enough to know that you're not smart enough to know the answer, okay? So often you will hear me say something like this when I come to a passage like this. There are many different interpretations, but I'm going to tell you what I think is the true one because my view has the least amount of problems to it. Did you catch that? Now notice I'm admitting I've got problems with my view. I just think I've got the least amount of problems <laughs> than others have on their views, but they may be right. So just want to clear uh, uh, the, the air on that one. So sometimes this battle of Ezekiel begins with Two words, Gog and Magog, that'll bless your heart. Uh, it begins with uh, some confusion with the Battle of Armageddon. But there are several differences there that I just don't think uh, th that that is the, the true. Then others mention the, the fact that Gog and Magog are not only in Ezekiel 38, but they're also mentioned in Revelation 20 after the millennium. So they see the two coming together there in Revelation 20, which again, I think there are uh, so many differences between the two that it can't be one uh, and the same. I like what Joel Rosenberg, a prophetic scholar, writes when he said, Bible prophecy can be difficult, but it's not designed to be unknowable. So some chapters or texts we have to work through a little bit longer and more deeply and, and also compare with other scriptures. 
Some people never studied the book of Revelation. You know why? They're afraid of it. They say, oh, I couldn't understand that. Trust me, you can understand it. It's not a hard book to understand. It really isn't. There are some things we might differ about on the interpretation because there's a lot of figurative and symbolic language. But on the basic thrust of Revelation, it's not a difficult book uh, to understand. Don't be afraid of it. Prophecy is a great study that hopefully motivates us to love the Lord and to serve the Lord with all of our heart. So it's going to be a difficult passage, but uh, it's one that I think you can lay a hold of. Just to encourage you, one of the very first messages that I ever heard is a new Christian. Now, if you would have asked me back in the day I'm going to refer to when I was a, a brand new Christian, if you would have asked me, what are the names of the writers of the four Gospels? I couldn't have told you one, I don't think. You immediately say, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Anybody knows that. I didn't know it. So that just shows you how ignorant I was of Bible knowledge, okay? But when I sat in that pew in the back of the church, being a new Christian, you always sit in the back and get out faster. For those of you back there, uh, so, <laughs> excuse me, forgive me, that, that wasn't meant. I just couldn't resist it. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sitting back there, and as a young, just been out of the Army a year, and I'm sitting there, and I'm moving my body, and I could not believe it. I really couldn't. I couldn't believe that what I was reading in my scripture, that preacher, teacher up there by the name of Jack Van Impey, was explaining this text, 38 and 39. Now, I want to say I understood everything he said. I couldn't put it all together afterwards, but as he was teaching, I said, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so I was, so this, I hope you can do the same. And Jack Van Emmy put the cookies down on the table. That's why I could understand it. And that's what I'm hoping to do this morning with you. As Harry Ironside said, Jesus said to the shepherds, feed my sheep, not feed my giraffes. Okay, in other words, put the cookies right down where the people can get it and under uh, and understand it. Now, it's hard for you and me to imagine that some evening we could uh, hopefully we won't because we won't be here. But a person could turn on the evening news at a time when Israel, the Palestinians and all those surrounding Middle East nations are living in peace together. But as we saw last Sunday, the Bible teaches that a day is coming. It won't be an American president. It would be the president of a coalition of nations, 10 in particular, that are numbered in Daniel and Revelation, that will be put together under the strongest military leader in the day that we're speaking of, and he will lead this confederation of 10 nations together. And what he's going to do, after the rapture of the church, you see the arrow going up, then you have the tribulation period that is seven years long. And we saw that last week by seeing Daniel chapter 9. And this military leader is going to make a covenant with Israel. And he's going to make a covenant and he's going to promise to protect them. Now keep in mind, they're the greatest military in the, in the world at that time. And he's going to promise to, to protect them. So uh, they sign a covenant together. No doubt that leader is going to be Time's Man of the Year. He's going to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And according to nine, uh, Daniel 9.27, notice it says, he'll make a covenant with Israel that will seem at last to bring harmony, stability, and protection to this war, strife, torn area. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, we explained that last week. Can't go into it this week. 
We see that when the Jew talked about a week, you could be talking about a week of days, seven days, or you could talk about a week of years, seven years. I don't know of any Bible teacher or any commentary that doesn't agree with Daniel's 70 weeks being 70 weeks of years or 490 years. 69 weeks of that has been fulfilled already. It began with the building of uh, Jerusalem under Nehemiah. And then he says the 69 weeks will end when Messiah is cut off or rejected. So let's just say the crucifixion. Now, it could be the triumphal. Let's just say it's speaking of the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've had 69 weeks fulfilled, then that leaves another week. Now, when Messiah was cut off, the dispensation of the law ended. And so God's prophetic time clock of prophecy with the Jewish people stopped. I want you to imagine a big clock up there. And all of a sudden, the, the second hand, it stops. And it hasn't moved for over 2,000 years. And now God introduces a new body, and it's called the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we saw on the preceding uh, screen. So for 2,000 years, God's time clock of prophecy uh, has been stopped with Israel. But as soon as the church is raptured and the church is called out, and then that 70th week of Daniel begins, the seven-year tribulation period, that time clock of prophecy will begin ticking again. And it's the 70th week of Daniel, and we know that a week is seven years, so therefore that's why we know that uh, this is a seven-year period of time. Now it says in the middle of the week that he is going to break that covenant that he makes with Israel. So you've got a seven-year time, and it begins with him shaking hands, and now he's made the covenant. But in the middle of the week, don't have to be genius here, middle of the week would be three and a half years, he breaks the covenant, okay? And then that's when all hell breaks loose. And that's when Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, 15, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which is in Daniel 9, 27, when you see that abomination of desolation, all hell is going to break loose on Israel and you ought to get out of, out of town. Now, one thing I didn't point out last week, which I need to mention this morning, is that in our study of Daniel 9, 27, we didn't answer the question that he'll make the uh, covenant, and notice those next two words, with many. So that raises the question, who are the many? Are the many... Many people in Israel, would it mean the prime minister, the Knesset, the people of Israel? Is that the many? We don't know. Or is it he makes the covenant and Israel's the primary uh, recipient of this, of this covenant. But since they're solving the Israeli-Palestinian problem, it's hard to do that because it's not really an Israeli-Palestinian problem. It's a Middle East problem. So whatever you do in Israel or with Israel and the Palestinian, it's going to extend to Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Saudi Arabia, as well as Iraq. Because these countries that I just mentioned all have very large Palestinian populations today in the country, many of them living in refugee camps. And also keep in mind when you, we speak of Islam, now we're going from the geographic to the religious, and that whole area is encompassed with Islam. When we go to that, Jerusalem is their third most sacred site. So for the, for the 
uh, a Muslim, you've got Mecca, then you've got Medina, and then you've got Jerusalem. And many of you who have been to Jerusalem have seen the Dome of the Rock where the Temple of Israel once was, which really presents a big dilemma. If Israel's going to build on the temple, trust me, they don't want it built on any other site than when the temple once stood. And so it's got to be in that area right there where the Dome of the Rock is and where many of you have seen uh, the Western or what they call the, the Wailing Wall. So any agreement's going to have to at least uh, involve the, uh, the surrounding nations. So when what seems to be a stroke of brilliance, this future European leader, he brokers this multi, as I, under, as I think, as a multinational peace agreement that seems to solve the Middle East crisis. Now, after decades of war and strife, and Israel always wanting to secure their borders, finally, when the peace is promised and you've got the strongest military in the world promising protection for you, you finally breathe a sigh of relief and say, at last, our swords are turned into plowshares, as Isaiah prophesied. Now we can focus on economic growth and not worry about national security. Our borders are secure. We are living in a time of peace and safety. And that's where I bring in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So Israel may be at peace with their near neighbors. We mentioned some, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Iraq. But you notice that I left out certain nations that are especially associated with what you and I would call militant or fundamentalistic uh, Islamic believers. And so when you think about them, Israel's at peace with some of their neighbors, but other more militant Islamic countries are not going to be happy with this accord. Now remember, the Islamic fundamentalist has two primary thoughts, and you've heard it if you've paid attention to the news. They have two primary thoughts about Israel. Number one, the only good Jew is a dead Jew. So annihilate the Jewish people. Not new. It's been the tool of the dragon, Satan, for 4,000 years, hasn't it? Just go through history, and you'll see it all the way through. Behind what we see on the military, whether it's the Nazi Germany, whether it's Assyria or Babylonian or Media Persian or Greece or Roman, behind it all is Satan. Satan hates and has always hated Israel. Why? She's a repository for the word of God. We owe this book to the Jew. She's the seed of the Messiah. My Savior, your Savior, was a Jew. She was a witness to the world. Hadn't been a good witness the last 2,000 years. Wasn't a very good witness many parts of the previous 2,000 years. But that's why God called her, and Satan hates that. So if he can destroy Israel, he thinks he could have, through history, if he could have annihilated the Jews, then Jesus wouldn't have been born and sat and we wouldn't have the Bible. And so he's failing, he's going to keep failing, but he's still not giving up. So they hate the Jew. And then the second thought that might be uh, in their mind is the what? Put Israel out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. 
you hear that as well. And so that might be what they're, they're thinking in, in their head. And so they're going to finally take matters into their own hands, and they're going to launch a surprise attack upon Israel. Now let's look at the evasion in the following chronological. I'm trying to, going to try to move a little faster than I did in the first service, bless their hearts. Um, I looked at my watch, and I, even I couldn't believe it. But anyway, we're going we're gonna to try to go. So I want, you to, uh, I want us to see this invasion kind of in a chronological way, and we're going to look at Israel. So we're going to look at Israel before the invasion, then during the invasion, and then after the invasion. And that takes us through Ezekiel 38 and, uh, uh, and 39. So in, first of all, before the invasion, we say Israel is asleep to God. Israel is asleep to God. Now, we began this study four weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago, by saying the rapture of the church is the next event. And soon after that, the Antichrist, the man of sin, the head of the ten-nation confederation, he makes that peace agreement with Israel, next chart, uh, promising peace and prosperity. And so you see up on the left hand, that begins the seven years. There's the shaking of hands, okay? So now we're friends. We're making a covenant. Then you'll see in the middle the picture of the holiest of holies in the, in the temple. So now he goes into the temple, okay, and that's where he turns on the Jew. He violates the covenant, does away with it. Then he sets himself up, and that's what Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. That's what Jesus referred to. When you see the abomination of desolation midweek, he's writing to the Jews, speaking to the Jews, get out of town. Because that's when all the persecution breaks loose upon the Jewish people. And then for the next three and a half years in culminating ed, you have basically a time of wrath and, and judgment and uh, a fire and uh, of a very unpleasant uh, situation. So we don't know, and I, I need to keep this in mind with you, uh, we don't know how much time elapses between the rapture of the church in the tribulation. Now, if you go back to that preceding chronological chart uh, right before there, I think, if you go back to the chart right there, you'll see that we normally put the church age and then the rapture and then right after the rapture, the seven years. And then we usually put after the seven years, right immediately, the millennial kingdom, right? So it's just easy for you to capture with your eyes, right? You can follow along. Sure, I see it. Church age, uh, rapture, seven years, millennial kingdom. But what we really don't know and we don't talk much about either, is that we don't know exactly how much time comes between the rapture and the start of the tribulation period. We don't know exactly how much time is between the tribulation, uh, between the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom. So I don't think it's much time, but how much is not a much time? Is it a week? Is it a month? Is it six months? Is it a year? You don't know and I don't know, so let's just be honest and say we don't know. But it seems to be like other chronological things that have happened in prophetic events, one does follow the other in somewhat of a uh, rapid uh, sort of way. Now, when you come to the middle of the week then, the lawless one breaks his covenant, the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel, and then as we go about three more uh, slides ahead where you see the shaking of the hands, he appears in the temple of God, and he makes himself out uh, to be uh, a God himself. And so he puts himself in the temple. A couple more slides uh, advance. Uh, and when you see him in the temple, then what he's doing, he's breaking his covenant with Israel. And he sets himself in the temple of God. And when he breaks his covenant with Israel, what he does is he 
makes, as we saw in Daniel 9.27, the sacrificial system to stop. Now, if you're thinking this morning, then you've got to have the thought, or possibly you have the thought, well, if there's a sacrificial system and there's a temple and he sets himself up in the temple claiming to be God, where'd the temple come from? When was it built? There's no temple in Jerusalem now. And so the question is, is there a temple? The answer unequivocally is yes, there is a temple. But when was the temple built? Now, it seems to me, please, underline the word seems. It seems to me that a underlying possibility is that one of the preconditions of the Jews signing that covenant, since the temple is such a centerpiece of who they are, is that in that condition, they might have the permission to build a temple. Uh, and so they can then build the temple. Which raises a second question you've already thought of. How long will it take to build the temple? If it's already there three and a half years after the rapture, when does the temple get built? Now, you'll be interested to know this, that I anticipated your question. And interestingly enough, if you go back to the second temple that was built, that would be under your books of the Bible, the prophets Ezra and Haggai. Why are they significant? Because what happens is the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he tells you exactly the date the beginning of the second temple construction began. If you then go to the book of Ezra, a contemporary of Haggai, he then writes in chapter 6, uh, uh, verse 15, the exact day the temple was completed. So all you have to do, and it's not difficult, you just Google it if you want to, and you say, change the Hebrew months into English months. So what is called Adar might be October or whatever the case is. When you do that, guess what you will find? That the construction began on September 21st, 520 B.C. And it was finished on March 12th, 516 B.C. Doesn't that tickle your ears? And aren't you glad you know that? Because you know how long a period of time that is? It's exactly three and a half years. Just kind of interesting. So Dr. Charles Dyer, a man who's a lot smarter than I am, and one to whom I often go to uh, for advice on Israel and, and uh, prophetic teaching, he writes in his book, a construction period lasting almost exactly three and a half years. Now think of this. If the second temple can be built in three and a half years, and now 2,500 years later with all the advancement we have, it could easily be built in three and a half years if they did it back then um, in history. Now, if this is the correct sequence of prophetic events, then during the first half of the tribulation period, Israel will be in her land, protected by the strongest military force on, in the world, with the sacrificial system reinstituted in the temple in Jerusalem, which is built. It will be a time of peace, and safety, unthreatened by other nations. 
So if you're following in your Bible, and they'll be on the screen, here are a few verses just to pick out of Ezekiel 38, verses 8, 11, and 14. After many days you will be mustered, that's he speaking of Gog and Magog, who's going to attack Israel. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land where people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel. That's Ezekiel 36, 37, where they're regathering back to the land which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples of the world. And now, now, here's where I've circled the words, dwell securely. Israel is dwelling securely. They're not dwelling securely today. They're on guard every minute of every day, knowing they could be attacked. All of them, verse 11, and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. You don't need a wall if you want to keep people out, Okay. Because now they're protected. We've got the greatest military in the world. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely. All of them dwelling without walls. No protection is needed. And having no bars or gates. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God on that day when my people in Israel are dwelling securely. Will you not know it? Now, Israel is dwelling securely, and my first point is what? Israel is asleep to God. The nation that once had said, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the Lord our God. Guess what they're doing now? They're not trusting in the Lord their God. They're trusting in chariots and horses through the military might of the 10 European Confederations. Now, as we look at Ezekiel 38, we're finally there. We see the leader of this army is called uh, Gog. So let me just uh, pick it up for you very uh, quickly today. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Aren't you glad you understood that, right? Put that in your spiritual pipe and smoke it for a while, okay? So... My understanding is that this leader of this confederation, Gog, G-O-G, has great historical meaning when Ezekiel wrote it. It doesn't mean a thing to you or me. But it will be like I say today. There's going to be a confederation of nations who are under the leadership of Hitler or under Caesar. Right away, you would know what I mean. I'm talking about a powerful, evil personage or group that is going to try to bring uh, harm. And that's what Gog means. He's an evil man devising an evil plan. And God will use him. In fact, God raises Gog up with these nations to bring them against his people Israel, to chastise his people, which he's done for 4,000 years, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome, when his people have been disobedient, he uses Gentiles to punish, and then he punishes the Gentile nations that hurt his people. Now, that doesn't relieve them of their human responsibility. It just means God is in control, not Gog or anybody else. Now, as we look at the map of the Middle East today, we want to see these locations of the various countries of this alliance. Because in identifying these lands in the Bible, a lot of people pay attention to the sounding of the names. I don't want you to pay any attention to that. 
So when it says in the King James, he is Rosh, which is translated, it, it can be a noun or an uh, uh, adjective, just like we have that in our language. Think of the word head. We say Putin is the head of Russia. Well, that's a noun. Or I can say I went to a restaurant last night and I talked to the head waiter. Now it's an adjective. So Rosh can be a head, a noun, or it can mean uh, somebody uh, who is chief. Who is in, and the best translation is not Rosh, because some like that because it sounds like Russia. Then you get out of Rosh, out of uh, Rosh, and then you get to, uh, a Meshach. What does that sound like? Moscow. Two ball. Two balls. Forget that now that I said it already. I want you to think of geographical locations because that's what, uh, what Ezekiel has in mind. So we got Gog, verse 2, Gog of the land of Magog. It's going to come in there at the top. I hope you can catch it on the screen. The, tree, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, that shows you where they're located historically. That's what we're saying is coming out of that today. Then three more nations are put together in verse 5 with the first and primary one called Persia. And Persia, you remember, was her name until 1935 when she changed her name from Persia to Iran. So Iran is today the Persia that you're seeing on the map. Kush today, now we're going down into Africa, Kush is today Sudan, and then you have Put. You don't know what a hard time I had studying and say, where do I put Put? And then uh, 2,000 years ago, Josephus, who wrote the Antiquities, uh, and, and was a contemporary of Jesus, and he, he chronicled history. Josephus wrote that put is what the Greeks called ancient Libyas, which today is the same area as the country of Libya, except it was larger than Libya today. So possibly underlined, it could include Algeria as well as Tunisia. We can't be sure. Then in verse 6, we read of Gomer. No, Gomer Pyle wasn't born in Gomer. Gomer now is the modern country of Turkey. And now you know why I put the picture of Vladimir Putin and President Erdogan uh, and the Ayatollah Khomeini in that picture. Then you've got Beth Tagarma, and that was in the Armenia and Turkey area as well. Twice then, Ezekiel adds this, they are from the uttermost parts of the north. Now, if you just take a globe or a map and you look at Jerusalem, which is the center uh, of the world, the epicenter of the world, he says that in Ezekiel 5.5 as well, by the way, and you just go north and you go to the uttermost north, you're going to end up in Russia. Now, if you go beyond Russia... Then you're going to be at the North Pole, and then you start coming south through Canada, okay? But if you go to the other post, listen to what Joel Rosenberg wrote uh, in his book a few years ago. Magog settled north of the Black Sea, north of the Caspian Sea. He's really going back to Genesis 10 here, after the Tower of Babel and the nations, uh, the, the sons of uh, Noah were spread throughout the world. So that's where he's going back. Then he traces it through, but I don't have time to do that. Magog settled north of the Black Sea, north of the Caspian Sea, in the regions we call today Russia and some of the former Soviet Union republics. 
So you got this confederation of these nations together. So you'll notice how the attack surrounds Israel. It comes from the north, comes from the east, it comes from the south, and it comes from the west. Israel is surrounded by this tremendous military force here. So we ask the question, when you look at these areas today, and you got Persia, and you got Russia, and you got Libya, and you've got Africa, and Europe, what could possibly unite people together with such a diversity uh, culturally, geographically, and linguistically? And I think there's two things. Number one, I think, is as you look at all these as they are today, if this is speaking of a near event today, they all are committed to Islamic fundamentalism. They're all committed to Islamic fundamentalism. Now, Turkey may surprise you because it's a member of, of uh, NATO. Turkey's no friend of the United States. I don't care what they say. And you see her aligning herself more and more with Russia. And if you dig deep into the Erdogan and what he wants, he wants it to be more, more Islamic republic than it is where it recognizes all the religions, okay? Uh, and that's going a little bit faster as well. So the first one is Islam. The second reason is their hatred of the nation of Israel. Every one of those nations we're looking at this morning hates the nation of Israel. And, uh, but that then raises another question. And I'm, <laughs> I'm raising more questions than I'm giving you answers. <coughs> but then I sit back and as I contemplate this, I say, why would a 10-nation or an 8-nation confederation want to now come against Israel, who was promised protection by the greatest military in the world at the time? I mean, you're just like committing suicide in a way. And I don't know the answer to the question except to say this, that son, when somebody hates you so badly and their emotions overtake them, they do things they wouldn't normally do. Would you agree with that? It's true individually, it's true religiously, it's true with countries. And so I'm speculating here, so take it with a grain of salt again. Israel has a temple, that's not speculation, that's truth. Where is that temple? You ask any Jew, that temple will go nowhere but where the wailing wall is. That's the site of the temple. They will not detour from that. What happens to the Dome of the Rock? I don't know. But is there such an hatred, and they see what's going on there, that they just form there and saying, this cannot happen. While the Jew is crying peace and safety, they're crying out, you gave away what you had no right to give away. You have violated the Holy Quran, and we'll take matters into our own hands. And so they come together in this great uh, uh, assault, this invasion of the land of Israel. Why are, they, uh, why are they assaulting the land? Verses 12 and 13 tell you it's to seize the land of Israel and all its wealth. King James Commentary says this, if you have it, the development of Israel since 1948 has been phenomenal. It's been a known factor of mineral wealth in the Dead Sea as well as of almost incalculable value. 
Most of it is used for the production of fertilizer. These chemicals, together with modern technology in farming by irrigation, increasing amounts of natural rainfall, could make it to be the bread casket for a large part of the world. Israel also stands at the crossroads of world commerce. Whoever controls Israel could control much more. So I think that's there. But I also think the greater motivation deals with this whole religious system of Israel having a temple, etc. Now, let me move quickly, and I'm going to do my best to get you out of here. Israel is asleep, but now here comes the invasion, and Israel is awakened by God. Prince Gog and his horde will swoop down from the north. Verse 15, notice what it says in Ezekiel 38. 38, uh, verse 15. He's going to sweep down upon them like a cloud covering the land. And totally ignorant that the God of Israel intends this for their own destruction. What does the Antichrist, the leader of the European Ten Country Confederation, think when he sees this undeclared war begins? Did he know about it? It'd be hard to imagine a person of that power and knowledge, not having some insight into what is starting to conspire around him. But when you look at this, you find no one comes to Israel's aid. Nobody. Not America. Where's America? She's doomed somewhere. The rapture happened. The Christians are out. America's days are over. Not the United States of Europe. They're part of the Confederation. Not the United Nations. Why? Let me tell you why. No one gives a rip about Israel. That's why. Nobody. And so there could care less that this is happening. So perhaps this leader of the Ten Nation Confederation, perhaps he thinks this will hasten the day of what his goal is. What is that? To be the Antichrist. Anti meaning in place of Christ when he can set himself up in the temple, not only demanding Israel to worship him, which they won't, but that the world worships him. Then you got the mark of the beast, 666. Anyone who doesn't worship the Antichrist, they're going to be put to death. So maybe he sees this as a hastening of that time, and so he lets the invasion take place. After all, even though he entered a seven-year covenant with Israel and promised to protect them, you can't let a good crisis go to waste, you know. And maybe that's what he's thinking. I don't know. Before the European leader has time to act, though, God does act. And he intervenes. Let me summarize these verses quickly. Are you ready? And they're up on the screen. He's going to cause an earthquake, first of all. Uh, you see that in 38, uh, down there toward 19 and uh, 20. Notice he says uh, in verse 19, in my jealousy and in my... Can you imagine what it would be like to be under the blazing wrath of Almighty God? You want to go there? Well, just keep rejecting Christ. Keep holding off. Keep riding the fence. Keep rejecting Christ. Be too proud to get on your knees and humble yourself before God. I don't think anyone wants the blazing wrath of God. In my jealousy, in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there will be a great earthquake. Ever been in an earthquake? It's awful. You talk about being totally out of control. I was in one in Bishkek, and it was a small one. 
They would say nothing to it. Trust me, there's something to any kind of earthquake. You feel totally out of just helpless. Look, verse 20, fish see, birds heaven, beasts of the field, creeping things. The people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down. Some of you have seen Mount Arbel. You've looked up at it from the Sea of God. Thrown down. The cliff shall fall. The wall shall crumble. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord. Earthquake. Probably will happen, by the way, there where he saw the Golan Heights, because that's an area known for that in Israel as the potential for earthquakes. As a result, verse, second thing happened, every man's sword will be against his brother. What does that mean? It's what we would call in the military today, you're killed by friendly fire. That is, they didn't intend to kill you, but they thought they were killing you. Why is that? Imagine the earthquake causing the problem it does. Then imagine all these nations. Some speak Farsi, some speak Russian, some speak Arabic, some speak uh, European language. You got all these people with different languages, different cultures, leading that attack, the north, the south, the east, the west. Their earthquake comes. Now they're killing some of their own people. Thirdly, thing is with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain upon him as hordes of the many people who are with him. Torrential rains, hailstones, fire, and sulfur. Get that. Who's in control here, Gog or God? I think we know the answer to that, don't we? Be so many killed that verse 12 of Ezekiel 39 says it'll take seven months to bury the dead. Now, with the description of the defeat in chapter 38 focuses on the army, 39 focuses on the leader of the army, Prince Gog of God. Let me just read a few verses, okay? Verse 1, God says, 39, I'm against you, O Gog. Verse 3, I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop out of your right. Verse 4, you shall fall on the mountains of Israel. I will give you, God is preparing a feast on this day. Anytime you see that often in Scripture, feast is often used of the enemy, not, not a pleasant thing. And God's feast here, notice what he's saying, verse 4, you shall fall on the mountains of Israel and I will give you Gog and your army to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beast of the field to be devoured. Verse 6, I will send fire on Magog. So God came to devour Israel, and now he is devoured by the birds of prey. Verse 23, the Lord gives three reasons for bringing Gog and his armies to Israel. It's up on the screen. This picture will reveal the greatness of the Lord. He'll reveal the holiness as he judges the sins of the leader from Magog and deals with his enmity against the Jews. The holy land belongs to the Jew. He has shared it with his people, Israel. Other nations have no right to it, no right to exploit it. The victory will make Jehovah known to the Gentile nations, and the world will see that the God of Israel is the only true and living God. Listen to Ezekiel 39, 7. I love it. In my holy name, I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. The nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Now we look at the closing thought in Ezekiel 39, 9 to 29. 
Israel has been asleep to God. Now they've been awakened by God. And now they're attuned to God. So the Lord God reveals what? His greatness, his omnipotence, his faithfulness, his holiness, and his glory to the people of Israel as their enemies are defeated. And Israel recognizes no one nation, not one people, came to their defense. And if it weren't for the Lord God of heaven, they would have been annihilated. And Israel puts her trust in him. So you have three things that happen. The cleansing of the land. It takes them a long time to do that. Seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. How great, gracious of them to bury their enemies. That's a pretty noble thought when you think of it. The call to the feast that we talked about, verses 17 to 20. They arrogantly entered Israel as proud soldiers but would be buried like slaughtered animals. Such is the fleeting greatness of man. And then the compassion of the Lord. He destroyed the invading army not only for the protection of his people but also the demonstration of his glory among the Gentile nations of the world. So the miracle was also a reminder to the Jew. What did it remind them of? Verses 27, 28. That Jehovah alone is the Lord. And this experience of deliverance reminded them of the many times in their history when similar things were looking like Israel would be destroyed, but God came to the rescue. And the victory over Gog and his hordes will tell the Gentiles that the Jews are indeed the people of God, indeed chastened by God in the past, but now destined for a kingdom. And in that millennial kingdom, all Gentile nations will come to Jerusalem, where Israel is the light of God shining brightly, and all nations shall join Israel in worshiping the Lord God of heaven. So there's coming a day when the rebellious nation Israel will be totally cleansed and forgiven, and the Lord will pour out his spirit on his people, and that will happen when they see him face to face. It's already begun, the conversion, the turning to the Lord, the awakening by God. But as we'll see next Sunday, and I hope you'll join us, after we see Armageddon and Jerusalem just about wiped out at the very end, then the Lord returns and uh, sets up his kingdom. And all Israel shall look upon him whom they have pierced, and Israel will all believe. What a glorious day that's going to be. So how do I close the message? With a message like this, and thank you for your attention, you've been splendid, and I mean that. How do you close it? I close it with four thoughts. Recognize God's greatness. Rely on his faithfulness, whatever you're going through. Respond to his holiness. Confess your sins. Get on your knees, humble yourself, and relish his great love. Father in heaven, thank you for how great is our God. How majestic is his name. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, the great, great love of the Lord. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And you deign to call sinners to repentance and faith in Christ, even now. I pray that would come about 
that some would say, Lord Jesus, I do receive and trust you as my Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.